You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, June 20th, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Laugh sometimes at, at our house. There's a, a game my, my wife likes to play where sometimes she will uh, let the refrigerator get as low as humanly possible before going to the store and Right before going to the store, she'll take everything that we've passed over in the refrigerator for the last number of days, and she'll bring it all together, kind of like Ray's trail mix, and, and make a meal out of it. Uh, and it always turns out well. Um, but for some reasons, we come to low expect we come to leftovers with low expectations. And and um, as I was reading these verses, I was reminded of how often we come to sections of God's word like this with low expectations, uh, treating these kinds of ends to letters, even like the genealogies in the gospel, is treating them like they're leftovers. Uh, they're things by which we skip over, we don't spend much time with, or we, we hope something better will come from them. But here's the thing, I, I have actually grown in my years um, as a follower of Christ and really even as a teacher to love sections of the Bible like this because they're sneaky. I mean, they sneak up on you if you actually slow down and give them the attention they deserve. I mean, even if sections like this, and we just read them, they they feel like scattered closing remarks made to a very specific person in a very specific situation at a very specific time. Yet even now for us here, there's a lot to learn about God and about life in Christ in these verses. Remember, it was Paul already in this letter who reminded us that This is God-breathed word. It is God's inspired word, and therefore, it's profitable. And so we can come even to verses like this with the expectation that God, by his spirit, through his word, will yield benefit in our lives through these words. And there's also the very real reality that when Paul wrote these specifically to Timothy at a very specific time in a very specific place, he intended for these words to be read aloud to the entire church. And so in God's preservation of his word and his inspiration of his word to his people, it's profitable for us now. And so this morning, as we begin to make our approach to the end of this letter, you can kind of consider this morning like the dropping of the landing gear on the plane. We're almost there. Um, I will confess to you that 2 Timothy, in our, in our journey through 2 Timothy You know, it's been one of the more personally challenging times in God's Word as a Christian, but in particular, you know, as a pastor and as a teacher. Um, The last 18 months, you know, in our world and in our own lives, we've just had a, a general season of disruption and upheaval and angst and hurt and frustration, and, and there's a reality that when these moments in life come, when there is such upheaval, God is actually giving us an opportunity to think about our life and, in a sense, rethink our life at a much deeper level. Um, I don't know if it's just what we've been through as a people. I don't know if it's that coupled with getting older. Um, watching my kids get older, 
uh, thinking through the very specific things that even in the last 18 months, you know, either myself or our family have gone through that were difficult or were painful. Maybe it's just partly being a pastor and listening to Paul as he speaks to Timothy, but this letter has, has proven to be one of the more personally challenging things I think we've done in a while. And I've come to this point in going through it where I've realized that it's been a gift that I don't want to waste. And more than anything, I don't want us as a people to waste it. And I was telling the first service, there's this feeling that I have, and I can only describe it and, and see if you've ever experienced something like it, but there's this feeling that I had when we came back from Afghanistan years ago. You see things, you experience things, you learn things, you can't unsee, you can't unexperience, you can't unhear. And I very much felt like my heart was wet cement. You know, wet cement you can mold, you can shape, but at some point it's going to set. And I knew that God was doing something, and, and I had this overwhelming feeling that I didn't want to waste it. There, were, there was changes, there was correction, there was something coming that I didn't want to miss. And I get the same feeling as I continue to read through and pray for us going through 2 Timothy. I want us to allow the Lord to bring whatever kind of correction and direction to our hearts that we need. I want us, as much as I want myself, to run our race of faith well, hard, that we might finish well. And for some of us, I want us for the first time or the first time in a long time to want to run our race well. This has been really the the overarching theme of this letter that Paul's been writing to Timothy in the church. As Paul's looking at his days, he may be, very well be able to number the days or the weeks he has left on his hands. There is a desire that he has for God's people to finish well. And for us to do that, for Timothy to do that, for those in Ephesus to do that, for us even now to do that, it, it may require a bit of a course correction. It may require a bit of resetting our direction in order to do that. Some of you might be familiar with a guy named Jerry Bridges. Uh, he went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago. Uh, he's a phenomenal teacher. Uh, Jerry served as um, an officer in the Navy during World War II. And pre-global satellite positioning technology, there was a primary way for centuries that people would be able to navigate the open water without satellites. And it was by the use of an instrument or a tool called a sextant. It looked a bit like a telescope, but it has an arcing into it. I didn't put a picture. I should have put a picture up there. If you saw it, you would be familiar with it. But basically what it was is someone was responsible for taking that instrument and looking in the, at the nighttime, looking up at a celestial body and picking a point. And I'm doing that again. I'm talking to myself again. <laughs> Happened last week. But you would take that point, and based on that instrument, you could calculate your location with the horizon at any point in time. You could use the sun, you could use the stars, but you would be able to see where you were in relation to those things so that if you were going off course, you could correct. Because with the power of the open water, the winds, the storms, the waves, if you did not set your position regularly, you could end up wildly off course. They called it shooting the stars. And in some sense, I've thought a lot about that as we've been going through this letter, that 
In a sense, Paul's letter is serving like that instrument to help us be able to shoot the stars of our own life spiritually, so to speak, that we might not find ourselves off course, that we could finish well. He's been very clear that rough waters lay ahead, rough enough to knock us off our course, rough enough to even threaten capsizing the ship. And so over and over again, Paul has been encouraging Timothy and the church to set your direction and set your course fixed on Christ, to treasure him, to love him, to trust him, to delight in his life-giving word, to guard it, hold fast to it, even to the point of being willing to suffer for it. And so in the end, as we come to these verses that might seem or sound so random, collections of greetings, requests, warnings, and even benedictions, Paul is still setting the course. He's still helping Timothy and the church, which means you and I, finish our race well. And so we're going to look at these remaining verses, verses uh, 9 through 22, over the next two weeks, this week and next week. Because even in his closing remarks, one of the things that I'm astounded by with Paul is that he never sugarcoats reality. If you've ever read Paul, if you've read his other letters, you know it to be true. But at any point in the letter, if he was ever going to sugarcoat anything, it would be at the end. And he doesn't. He reminds Timothy and the church, even in these verses, that finishing well in the race of faith is going to be hard. And trying to bring some kind of cohesion to these remarks, we're going to look at the difficulty of finishing well this morning under one big theme. And that's simply this, finishing well in the race of faith, especially relationally with one another, is going to be hard. And normally when I'm teaching on a morning like this, I don't really tell you where I'm going I tend to like to take you where we're going so that you can see it as we get there, but I know some of you find yourself all disoriented when I do that, which is normal. So let me give you an idea of where we're going so that you don't find yourself surprised. Finishing well, especially relationally, is hard. And we're going to talk about three parts of that theme. The first one is simply this. I'm going to let you know up front. Faithfulness to Jesus in your race is no guarantee that you'll always have the support of friends and co-laborers in your race. And that's going to come with some pain. We're going to talk about that. Secondly, though, the great Yogi Berra, not Yogi Bear, I didn't say it well in the first service, so people looked at me kind of funny. Yogi Berra was famous for saying, the game ain't over till it's over. And in this race of faith, it would be wrong for any of us to presume that we're just going to finish well. And then lastly, especially in the relational category and the difficulty of this race, we want to find encouragement in Paul's words that grace is greater than all of our failures and any bitterness or unforgiveness that might want to linger in our hearts. So that's where we're going. We're going to get to all of them. So let's jump into God's word. Remember Paul, he's in prison. He's been in prison for being a follower of Christ. He's in Rome and he's alone. And there's a difficulty that comes with that loneliness. In verse 16, we're going to jump around in these verses to try to make sense of them for you. In verse 16, 
Paul communicates what some say are some of the saddest words in any of the New Testament letters. In verse 16, Paul says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. By his own testimony, he's reminding Timothy and the church not to be entirely surprised when in this race of faith, you're left alone to defend yourself in difficult times. See, ever since he was arrested in Jerusalem, Paul has been appealing to his citizenship for the right to be able to give his testimony in front of Nero. What Paul has wanted was to be able to have an audience in the very shadow of Nero's palace to give testimony to the gospel, to give testimony to the power and the work of Christ in his life. And as a Roman citizen, he had that right. And he's been arguing for it ever since he was arrested, and he finally got it. He made his way to Rome. And the way that these trials would happen in Rome is there were a series of appointments, very similar to the way trials may happen in ours. And Paul had his preliminary trial before what's probably similar to our Supreme Court, basically. He had his preliminary time to give testimony to the gospel in his life. And when he stood up to speak of the power and the nature of God in Christ and what is evident in the way that he's lived, he said, nobody was there with me. Nobody was there to advocate for me. Nobody was there to bear witness to what I was saying. Nobody was there to bear witness to the truth of what I was communicating. I was left all alone. And at the end of that first trial, he was tried as guilty which is why he's in the prison, awaiting his final sentencing, which he knows to be execution. One writer said, you and I are going to have to wait for heaven to find out what that testimony sounded like. Because unless there were Gentiles in that room that were converted through Paul's testimony that day, there will not be a single other Christian in glory who will be able to tell us what went on because Paul was all alone. By implication, he's reminding Timothy that faithfulness, running well, fighting hard, is no guarantee that when you need them, your friends and co-laborers are going to be there to support you. Don't be surprised. And at the same time, don't be caught off guard when the race that God has for your good friends or the course that God has for your co-laborers in ministry takes them on a different path. That's what much of the middle pieces of this really is. Paul says, Crescens, he's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament, has gone to Galatia. Evidently, he was a partner with Paul in the work of the gospel, but being the field general that he is, still guiding the troops, Paul understood the need for a laborer to be in the region. And so rather than having him with him in this time of loneliness and imprisonment, he sends him to Galatia. Titus, very much to Paul like Timothy was, uh, someone he invested much of his life in. He had sent to Crete to lead the church in Crete. Evidently, he had finished his ministry there in Crete. And rather than having Titus with him while he's imprisoned, while he's awaiting his execution, Instead, he sends Titus to Dalmatia. He's off on the Adriatic coast. In verse 20, 
Paul reminds Timothy that Erastus has remained in Corinth. Erastus, if we follow Paul's writings in the book of Acts, was probably the city treasurer of Corinth. We meet him in Romans 16. But Paul also sent this same Erastus to be with Timothy in Macedonia in Acts 19. Evidently, most likely, when Paul was arrested in Jerusalem again, and he's going to make this voyage from Jerusalem to Rome, where he is now, where he could stand trial before Nero, you were allowed in those days as a prisoner when you were making these journeys to have friends or family or co-workers travel with you, even while you were in chains on the trip. And so evidently, he was with Paul up to the point of Corinth, but he didn't make the rest of the journey with him to Rome. And so Paul's updating Timothy on where Erastus is. And not only that, I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. And Trophimus had journeyed with Paul on his third journey. He's named in Greece and in Traus, and he was named as one of the people that was with Paul on the boat back to Jerusalem when Paul was ending that third missionary journey. But physical illness has kept him from being with Paul in this time of Paul's life. And then there's verse 12. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. If you've ever read Paul's letters or worked through the book of Acts, you've met this guy. Twice, Paul refers to Tychicus as a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. He's one who has had some of the most important missionary endeavors in Paul's ministry. It was Tychicus that Paul gave the letters to the Ephesians, the Colossians, and the letter to Titus to carry to them. It was Tychicus that Paul gives this last letter that he writes to Timothy to deliver to him. This was a fellow brother and faithful minister in the Lord, a trusted partner of Paul's who Paul doesn't have with him in his hour of need, but rather Paul sends him to Timothy to deliver this letter and to remain in Ephesus so that Timothy can come back to Paul before it's too late. Look at verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. As soon as you can, I'm sending Tychicus with this letter to you that he might remain so that you can come and do your best, Paul reminds him again, verse 21, to come to me before winter. Paul knows he does not have much time left. And if the the travel of Tychicus to Ephesus and the time it takes for Timothy to turn around and get to Paul takes too long and winter sets in, the journey from Ephesus to Rome would not be possible for Timothy. And he wouldn't get to see Paul before his life is ended. The end is coming and Paul knows it. And he wants to see Timothy one last time. And as John Stott said, the same apostle who has set his love and his hope upon the coming of Christ, nevertheless also longs for the coming of Timothy. I long night and day to see you. That's how it started in chapter 1. That, my, that I may be filled with joy. He's had years of friendship, partnership in the gospel, stories that we'll only hear in eternity, journeys that no book we write could ever replicate, victories of grace that aren't even told in the stories that we have. They have it all together. They've been doing this together for years. And this kind of friendship and this kind of co-laboring in the gospel, we'll, we'll talk more specifically about it next week, but it is a gift of God's grace to us. But sometimes, 
in his wisdom, for his purpose, according to his plan, God will strategically reroute friends and co-laborers in ministry. And he'll do it for his glory, but it will hurt. It comes with a cost as well. And sometimes it's not even a strategic realignment, as we see already in Paul's letters. Sometimes it's just sickness. The old days where you were running and gunning together with everything you had for the gospel, all the stories, all the camaraderie, all the hope, just all of it bound together, the ways you would talk about what God would do in the coming years and decades and generations through your group together for his glory, sometimes he just reroutes it. And you don't see it coming, but it's hard. Even amidst the hard, the hard nature of this, I don't want you to miss something, though. It occurred to me while I was talking in the first service. I'm astounded by the open-handed nature. Not just Paul, but all these people he mentions. The open-handed nature with which they live their life before the Lord. Being willing to be sent wherever God would call them, at whatever point, at whatever time. Going here and going there, being sent to this region. I mean, you know they had things they enjoyed, people they enjoyed where they were. You know that for every week and every month and every year, they were in whatever place they were in. They were building roots in that place. But it's as if they wrote a blank check to the Lord with their life and said, sign it and send it however you want. And they did it. But when it happens, Timothy, don't be surprised. It's going to hurt. And there Paul is in his deepest hour of loneliness. He knows what's coming. And rather than keeping all of those people to himself, he, he sent them out to various regions and various places for the ministry of the gospel. He says, Luke alone is with me. It's a testimony to a faithful friend. We'll talk more about Luke next week. But though Luke is there, and this is no slight to Luke, Paul rightfully is feeling the weight of being alone. The loneliness has set in. And the implication to Timothy and to the church is simply this. Faithfulness to your race is no guarantee that friends and co-laborers in the race won't have a different path to run by the Lord. And that's okay. But it's going to hurt. But it's not just different strategic deployments that God may send them on that brings this. Paul says that faithfulness in your race won't exempt you from the pain of being hurt by friends or co-laborers who choose to step out of the race. That's an altogether different kind of pain. It's an altogether different kind of hurt. Do your best to come to me soon, he says in verse 9, because, verse 10, for, that's what for means, because, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, the, the New Testament record shows us that Demas, for all intensive purposes, started his race very well. Twice, and, and once in Colossians and once in the letter to Philemon, Paul mentioned Demas specifically as a fellow worker in the gospel. But here in Paul's last letter that we have of his writing before his execution, it looks as though Demas is in danger of not finishing his race well. 
rather than loving Christ's appearing, he seems to have fallen in love with this present world. And that love has compelled him in this moment to desert Paul. Now, if you're a human, you read this and you want to know exactly what that means. What did it mean for him to fall in love with this present world? And what did it mean for him to desert Paul? But Paul doesn't take up any space in the precious resources that he had to give us any of those kinds of details. We have to read between the lines a little bit. Maybe the temperature of being associated with Paul now in Rome just got too hot for Demas. It was one thing for Paul to be in prison for the gospel. Every other time he was in prison for the gospel, he was released. He was acquitted. But not now. Now he's in Rome and he's been found guilty and he's awaiting execution. It might just be too hot and too difficult for Demas in that moment to be associated with Paul in the name of Jesus. So he deserted him. Maybe it was that and maybe it was just the relentless temptation to find a more comfortable place to live a more comfortable and easy way of living. Thessalonica was a very prosperous and pluralistic city in the day. Maybe he could just settle in there and it wouldn't be quite so difficult because Paul was a bit extra probably. That's a word we use in our house all the time. Paul's a bit extra. There wasn't space for Paul and there wasn't space with Paul for this kind of love of the present world to in any way begin to eclipse love for Christ and the gospel. So Demas left him. And here's the thing, we we need to pay attention to this warning. On one hand, there's the real preparation that Paul is giving Timothy and the church that when this happens, it's going to hurt. Don't think that just because you're faithful, just because you're running hard and, and you've been running hard with these people for a while that this can't happen. When it happens, it's going to hurt. There's preparation. But at the same time, there's a warning. Because the reality of it is there was a time in Demas's life when he would have never fathomed this ever being a possibility. When, when Demas heard the gospel and committed himself as a fellow worker with Paul for the gospel, when he traveled with Paul from region to region, when he saw Paul suffer, when he saw Paul preach, when he saw God work, he could have never imagined that this day was ever going to come in his life. He didn't wake up one day and decide to do a 90-degree about face. No, Demas is is suffering the, the reality of drift. John Piper said that more people will leave Christ and leave the church and leave the ministry and leave the hope of heaven because of love for this world than anything else. Demas didn't intend to find himself in this situation, but he serves as a warning to us. If we listen, in a sense, he helps us to shoot the stars spiritually, to get the right course and fix on Christ that if we find ourselves needing to make a course correction now, we can, that we don't find ourselves off course like Demas has. Because the race ain't over till it's over. And it would be wrong to ever presume that faithfulness in the past guarantees finishing well. In every single one of us, there, there is something that is going to captivate our heart. It is going like a, 
like a drain or like a vacuum to suck every bit of affection and trust and security and stability and hope in our hearts. Every single one of us is created this way. Demas was in love with the present world, and it led him off course. And this morning, we need to take some time to hear God's word about this, that we might understand what it is we're up against in our race, that we might be able to identify and then fight the same kind of drift. Now, in the New Testament, someone can correct me, but I don't find anyone speaking more pointedly about this than John in his gospel and in his letters. And so if you got your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 John, his letter. It's to the right. If you're at 2 Timothy, just go right. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15. I just want to listen. We're not going to spend a lot, we just want to listen because we need to learn. John writes to the church and he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Very clear command, right? Am I confused? Do not Do not love the world or the things in the world. That's the command. And the rest of these couple of verses, he begins to give the arguments for why. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in him. Right? What he's saying is love for this present world and love for God the Father can't coexist in the human heart. They're incompatible loves. There is an overarching passion. Remember those over-desires we talked about earlier in the letter? These over-passions that the heart gets captivated by? These are incompatible. Love for the Father and love for the present world can't coexist. One will displace the other, period. They can't share the throne. That's what John is saying. He's not saying anything Jesus didn't say. Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God in money. So Jesus is speaking very specifically there about something that that vacuum and drain in our heart can draw on for this kind of love, security, hope, and trust. You can't do it. They're incompatible. But John goes on. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, here's the logic. And the world passes away and the lust of it. Right? This present world, all that it holds out, all the promises that it makes, all the things that our hearts tend to get captivated by and lean into, they're all passing away. The logic is simply this. Who in any wisdom would ever bank on these things for all that their heart desires when they're going away. That is to bring upon yourself and to court for yourself certain misery. Right? Think about your own money. Think about your yearly income. Who in here would take their entire year's income and put it on a company that's going to go bankrupt in a month and you know it? Doesn't make sense, does it? Who in here would move on to a houseboat that was already sinking because you can see the hole in it? That's why Jesus said, don't lay up for yourself treasures where moth and rust can corrupt. Thieves can break in and steal. It makes no sense. So John says that 
he who does the will of God abides forever. Jesus would say, if you love me, you keep my commands. Later in the same letter, John says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commands. So the opposite of loving this present world, in one sense, is loving the Father, but that love for the Father is seen, is seen in the way you live and the choices that you make and the surrender to his will for the way that you live. This love for the Father, we'll talk about it in just a little bit, isn't like checking this mental box in your heart that says, okay, I love the Father, now I'll go do what I do. No, this love that captivates your heart for God the Father is seen in the way you live. In fact, it's this increasing love for God that makes obedience to Him, even in the difficult things, a joy. Right in John's gospel. Again, John writes about this, I think, more clearly than anybody. John chapter 5, you can go read it for yourself this week. Jesus says this, for this is the love of God, that, or John says, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. What makes them not burdensome? Love for the one who has given them to us. You know this in your everyday life. Right? Genesis chapter 29, just, you can relate to this. Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days. Why? Because he had love for her. Seven years of labor seemed like that because he loved her. The commandments of God, the ways of God, the path to life isn't burdensome, it's a joy. When you love him, that's what John is saying. Love for God enables us to obey and surrender out of joy out of satisfaction, but this love is utterly incompatible with a love for this present world because this present world is characterized by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Fascinating, even though we had preached on 1 John before, I had never actually noticed this as clearly. You can go look it up later today if you want to, but that last phrase, the pride of life, that word life John actually uses later in this letter in chapter 3, verse 17, and it's translated goods. Anyone who has this world's goods, that's life, and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? The world is characterized by lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride in the things you have, goods. The fuel that this present world runs on is lust for what we don't have and pride in what we do have. And the sinful heart can take anything, any good gift that God gives, and it can fill you with a love for it and a passion to get it. And once you have it, the sinful heart puts its trust and its hope and its pride in having it. Now, John isn't saying that we're not to enjoy the good gifts that God gives. He's just reminding us that there is a right way to do that. There is a right way to enjoy those gifts. In fact, Paul has already talked to Timothy about this. He did it in his first letter to him. 1 Timothy chapter 6, let me read this to you. Paul tells Timothy to speak to the church, right? Tell the church. Command those in the church who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So the gospel reorients your faith, your hope, your trust in God and away from this present world 
And that love and that freedom enables you to begin to enjoy the good things that he's given. Command them, he says, verse 18, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So now Paul is communicating to the church the proper use and enjoyment of these gifts, especially their riches. It's good deeds and sharing. And then notice what happens. Verse 19, in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The gospel reorients our hearts to love for God and not love for this present world. And that love for God reorients the way we relate to the good gifts that he has given us. And we begin to relate to them and enjoy them and use them for the purposes that he has. And that brings the right assurance to our hearts that our faith isn't misplaced. That's the logic. Demas had gone off course. Demas had placed the world in a way that its passions and its priorities took the place that was rightly due to God himself in such a way that it weakened his faith, it weakened his hope, it weakened his confidence, and it weakened his satisfaction in God, which altogether changes the way that we live, and he deserted Paul in the midst of it. It's a warning to us. The drift is very real. The danger is real. It's a pastor in Washington, D.C. His name's Tabidi Anyabwile. You might be familiar with Tabidi. He wrote an article years ago about this. And towards the end of the article, he said, we cannot love the world correctly until we love the Father completely. There is a way in which we enjoy the good gifts of God that don't supplant love for him in our hearts. Demas serves for us as a moment of warning, but an honest moment of course correction as well. If we be willing to do the work of shooting the stars, so to speak, to see at what point we're fixated. I mean, you might hear this warning and hear these words in the scriptures, and if you're honest with yourself this morning, you might say, well, I don't really sense or feel much love for God in my heart. On one hand, that may very well be the best news you could ever own this morning because it may be a very clear indication to you that Christianity for you, however far and however long you've associated yourself with it, has been a cultural association in your life. There was a pattern of living and a way of living that you adopted for yourself a manner of thinking that you took on for yourself without ever really having a transformative experience of God the Holy Spirit in your heart. Taking your dead heart of stone and giving you a new heart and a new love for God. The very thing Paul talked about in this letter to Timothy, a form of religion. And one writer in writing about this said, people have no trouble choosing heaven over hell, but they have a hard time choosing heaven over earth. Later in that article, Tabidi wrote this. I'll let you hear him. He can say his own words better than I could ever recap them. If you're sensing that lack of love in your heart, maybe you've told yourself you do love the Father. Or you've told yourself, hey, there's nothing really wrong with having all these things and so on. If you're that person, here's what just happened to you when you read or you heard me say, you cannot love the world correctly until you love the Father completely. Here's what happened. You checked an I love the Father box in your heart, even without thinking about it. 
And immediately then, the thought of the cravings and the desires and the things and the activities that you can go on doing in this world captivated your mind. Rather than hearing this statement as an encouragement towards a more complete love of God, you took it as permission to continue on your path. You're using the truth of the Bible as an excuse for loving the world more than God. And in your heart, you're thinking like the world. You may very well have never had a transformative experience. And that's the best news you could ever hear this morning. And we'll talk about why in a minute. Another reality might be that you have been born again, but if you're really honest, your love for God has just grown cold in your heart. Your heart has just grown cold to Him. A smoldering wick, a bruised reed. Friends, if your love for God is cool, if it's grown cold, it's highly likely then that your love for this present world has begun to heat up. And like Paul and John have said, those two loves are incompatible in your heart. You're going to give that place to something. The good news for both is that the remedy is pretty similar. The remedy to both is the Spirit of God and the Word of God. It was Peter who reminded us that we're born again through the living and abiding Word of God. So if you've never been born again, I would encourage you to give yourself over to the Word of God and to cry out to Christ to open up the eyes of your heart that you might see the glory of God in His face. Plead with God to take out the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh that you might love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Forsake all known sins and give yourself to God's means of grace until the light of his mercy dawns on your heart. And as one writer so wonderfully put, it shines so bright in power and love that he is irresistibly attractive to you and you have no other recourse but to love him. The same word and the same spirit that brings new life to dead hearts is the same word and the same spirit that rekindles cold hearts to fresh love. So cry out to the same Jesus for a new taste of his glory and his mercy. Refuse to remain content with lukewarmness. That is the environment where drift can set in. But then there's a third category of of heart that may be here this morning. Maybe you want to love the Father more, but you feel despair at the thought of ever actually being able to. Let me try to encourage you this morning, because I might fall more into your camp. If you weren't Christ's, you wouldn't even desire to love him more. I heard something, it had to be a decade ago, and I wrote it down, and usually it's on a card in my Bible, or it's in my office, or something like that, and I've kept it with me forever. And it's simply this, weak love is not zero love. Some of you need to be reminded of that, that you need to rest your confidence not in the perfection of your love for God, but on the perfection of Christ who loves you and who's loved the Father in your place. Friends, we need to let Demas be a warning on us this morning not to presume upon finishing well but to run our race well. And then with a couple of minutes, I I just, I want to let Paul's words to some other good friends in the letter, good friends who had failed him, who had let him down. 
I want to let his words be a word of encouragement to us as we finish this morning. Because God is in the business of forgiving sin, kindling a passion in our hearts for him, sustaining us in our race of faith, and at the same time reconciling us to himself and reconciling us to one another and sending us out in faithful service. Paul knew the power of this grace in his life. In his first letter to Timothy, he reminded Timothy that formerly he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent of Jesus. But he said, I received mercy. See, because Paul had received such mercy from God, and his life and his race was won by daily enjoying that grace that he had received. It so shaped and colored the way that he understood himself and his own life that when friends and co-laborers would fail him, when friends and co-laborers would disappoint him, Paul could do nothing but extend the same grace and forgiveness to them that he had received from God. Go get Mark. Bring him with you. He's very useful to me in ministry. It's the same Mark who deserted Paul earlier on his missionary journey in Acts 13. The same Mark who Barnabas in Acts 15 tried to bring with him on their next journey. And Paul said, no way, I'm not taking him. He's not going with me. So strong was his disagreement that Paul and Barnabas split. But bring me Mark. He's useful to me. There's a reconciliation and a forgiveness and a trustworthiness that's come. And unlike Demas, Mark actually had a weaker start. He disappointed Paul early on, but now he seems to be ending well. And just as he had received mercy, Paul extended it to others who had let him down. Because he knew grace and forgiveness always trumps unforgiveness and bitterness. And it wasn't just Mark. At my defense, no one stood by me. Everyone deserted me. May it not be charged against them. At the end of the chapter, we'll read it next week, Paul sends greetings to Timothy from a bunch of people and a number of them are members of the church in Rome. Where were they when he was on trial? Where were they? They were amongst those that deserted him in trial. Yet he doesn't speak a word of bitterness, doesn't speak a word of anger, he offers up a word and a prayer of forgiveness. Because his life and his race has been won, run by an intense resolve to see and enjoy Jesus and to be changed bit by bit into his image and likeness. The one in whom his hour of need was abandoned by all of those who were closest to him. And yet his prayer was not of anger of bitterness, of injustice. It was a forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I truly believe that included his disciples as well. Paul has tasted and seen that grace is greater than all the emotion and the temporal satisfaction that we think unforgiveness and bitterness can give us. Because all of us, and Paul knew it, all of us fail. And for some of us, our failures wreak horrible destruction in our lives. But Paul knew that if we turn from our failures to Christ, 
There is no sinful failure that can't be redeemed by the cross. And if we would but turn to him, there is no failure, sinful destruction that Christ can't redeem and restore. Paul knew it. I had been an enemy of the church and of Jesus, but I received mercy. Friends, as we prepare to proclaim our confidence in God's grace through Christ's life, death, and resurrection when we receive communion, I just want to remind you, whatever sinful failure may be dominating your heart and your mind in your distant past, in your near past, in your present reality, I think if Paul were here, he would say of all the things that you can abandon, of all the things that you can desert, abandon that thing. Take that thing to the cross and leave it there. Come to Christ and be restored by him. For some of you, you've been sitting here listening and you've, if you're honest with yourself, you'll have to own that in the fight of faith, You've been absent without leave. Maybe you've thought that you could sit this part out. Friends, if Paul was here, I think he would implore you to come and re-enlist in the battle. It's not too late. It's never too late. Forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. Resolve to pursue Christ as your treasure from this day forward. And as you do, watch him. Watch him redeem your worst sinful failures and make you very useful for his purposes and his glory. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we, uh, we thank you that with you there is no running out of grace. There is no running out of mercy. And so this morning, Lord, we ask that you would use your word by your spirit in our hearts to bring a measure of course correction. That if we've been weighed down and dominated by our sinful failures and our, our lack of love for you, Lord, that you would fix our eyes and fix the hope of our hearts on your son that you would send the wind of your spirit to fill our sails, that we, that we might run this race and fight this fight of faith well, finishing well, fixed on you, satisfied in you, delighted in you. May you captivate our hearts more than anything that the present world could ever hold out. Help us to see the emptiness and the bankrupt promises of this present world and to push all the chips across the table to you. The hope of eternity and the hope of grace. Lord, we ask that you would do that this morning in our hearts for Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.